HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bordeaux Wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a reasonably priced wine for everyone and for every occasion. For more information, visit bordeaux.com slash U.S. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and Altalinia is officially closed for the season. Thank you so much for everyone who came, who uh, drank our frozen Negronis and drank our great wine in the uh, outdoor courtyard up in Chelsea. We hope to see you next year as well. We'll certainly let you know uh, if there's any news on that. Um, thanks uh, also to everyone who's been listening to the new fall season. We have a bunch of great new shows coming for you uh, every Wednesday. Um, we'll re- be releasing them Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, live. Uh, otherwise, you can always look at our website, heritageradionetwork.org, backslash in the drink, in order to find all of the past episodes. Um, I also recently got back from Harvest in Loreto Aprutino Abruzzo for the Anona Wines in 2016. has proven to be a really great vintage. Uh, it was rainy near harvest and everyone was was very scared, but um, it, it pushed things back. We're about a week and a half later than last year, but the fruit came in super, super healthy. Um, picking the multiple Chano fruit and doing it by hand with uh, with the team was, uh, was certainly a lot of hard work and was uh, was really humbling and gave me a great understanding for what it really means to do to make an artisanal product up close by hand uh, a ton of work, and so it's really exciting to uh, to work on that project. And uh, more more information on that, uh, you can go to www.anonawine.com. I realize I don't have to say www anymore. My Alyssa <laughs> always gives me a hard time about that. So just anonawine.com, and uh, please uh, check out more information on Anona. Uh, all right, I am really excited about uh, today's show. We have a master of wine, actually France's only female master wine isabel legeron is here in the studio with us today she's going to talk about her raw wine fair which she is bringing to new york it is an international 
Natural Wine Fair um, in Berlin, in London, New York, uh, maybe somewhere else that I don't know about. Um, and uh, she's also the author of the great book, Natural Wine, um, that really explains what what is a natural wine, uh, what is it not, uh, why you should be drinking them. Um, she's also sometimes known as that crazy French woman, but I don't think she's that, I don't think she's that crazy. Uh, welcome to In the Drink, Isabel. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. That's great to be here, I have to say. Uh, so you're here a few weeks uh, ahead of time for uh, the raw wine, uh, the raw wine fair. Uh, it's November sixth and seventh. Is yep, that correct? Yeah, that's right. In about four weeks' time now. Ooh, it's all very scary. <laughs> you know, we've been planning this for over a year, and now it's it's here, and you just think, oh god. And this is the yeah. first one in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is our first, um, you know, event. I, I really hope it will be a success, and we hope to be here every year. And tell us about how you came up with this idea for the raw wine fair. You're really known as uh, the master of wine who's really taken the flag for uh, for natural wines. Um, I don't know of any other. I'm sure a lot of them also love to drink them, but I don't know anyone else who's really like uh, made that their their super cause. So how did how did you get interested in the wines and how did you start the fair? So the fair was started in uh, in 2012 uh, in London, um, and I created that for two reasons. The first one is we didn't really have an event in in, in the UK that was bringing all the growers together, uh, giving the the, the sommelier the, the public an opportunity to you know meet those people because for me that's the most important thing is to to actually spend time and ask questions taste the wines and give give them a little bit of context so that didn't exist so i thought we really need to do something about that and then the angle for the fair straight away for me was about transparency because one of that the, the um, i think the difficulties we have in the wine industry is that we you know, we, we, we pour a product, we serve a product, we, we drink the wine, but actually a lot of people don't really know how the, how the wine is made. And at Raw, we've committed to transparency, and if growers add, you know, the only thing really they add will be a bit of sulfites, then we, we, we disclose that information and we mention exactly the total levels in each cuvee. Uh, and we get analysis from everybody, and it's a big research work, but then the, the, the show we produce, you know, then is is uh, is full of integrity, full of transparency, and um, you know, and, and I think uh, v- as a result, really professional. I think it's great that you're, you're doing that, and I completely agree. I find that when I when I tell our guests in the restaurant that you know wine can be made with over 200 additives, and the only one that it has to be listed is sulfites, where in small amounts, it's potentially maybe the least of, of the things that people need to worry about. Uh, and certainly in large amounts, it can be, it can be really bad. Um, they're, they're surprised. They think that wine is just a, a, healthy, uh, a healthy product. Yeah, I think that's, um, to be honest, it's probably our fault, you know, in the, in, in the wine industry at, at large, because I think we've been very good at selling the dream, um, the dream of terroir, the dream that wine is just grape juice that kind of springs off the ground, is fermented and, and you know, put into a bottle. Um, you know, all these beautiful labels selling, you know, that kind of the hand factor where actually a lot of wine are produced, you know, using a lot of machinery and barely touching the human hand. Um, so I think, you know, we really need to redress that. And I don't think there's anything wrong, you know, whichever way. I think it's our, our, our duty is to communicate, communicate exactly how the wine is made so that people can choose 
you know, what, what, they, what they buy at the end of the day. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I imagine as someone who was studying for the Master of Wine exam, you had to taste wines from, from all throughout the world. Um, at that time, were you as interested in, nat- in natural wine, and was it hard for you to kind of maybe taste these more industrially produced wines? Uh, yeah, no, actually, um, luckily I wasn't, because otherwise <laughs> it would have been probably impossible I can imagine, for, yeah. for me to finish the, uh, the, the MW, because, you know, we'd, we'd spend a lot of time in, in, in very sort of so called prestigious, expensive places that are not the wines I would be drinking uh, at all today. So it, luckily for me, it was a very gradual process. Um, and it was also a realization that um, I came to wine as a second career. So, you know, I was brought up on a farm, but escaped the farming. My, my family have a vineyard because I thought there's no way I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life because I had to do it when I was little. Um, so I escaped the vines, went to university, studied, and then ended up working in London in, in kind of the business world. Um, and then I went back to wine because I realized actually I was really missing home and, you know, the farm environment. But when I, when I studied, you know, like you, the, the, the WSET and then the MW, I realized that wine wasn't really, you know, that idea of the farm and people with their dirty hands doesn't really exist a lot in the wine world. And I, I became gradually quite detached and, and quite disappointed, actually, because, you know, a lot of the wines were ended up, like, t- tasting the same. And so gradually I, you know, I was getting a bit more... I don't know, bored, I guess, you know, of scoring wines and writing tasting notes. Um, but, you know, I was also discovering that there was this parallel universe and I kept tasting wines. I kept meeting people that really spoke to me and really resonated with what, you know, what I love about wine, which is really the farming and the people. And so, so I, I, you know, as I was finishing my MW, I was really opening up to this world. And, and, and when I completed it, when I, when I finally sort of, you know, did the dissertation and passed, then I just kind of put, you know, shut the door to a, a chapter of my life and, and opened something else, which a lot of people thought it was career suicide because, you know, suddenly I was like France, France's first French female master of wine. I had a lot of good, very good job offers. And I was like, actually, no, you know, I just want to really do something else. And then I, you know, went on a different, different route. Right. You, I'm sure you'd have the power to move thousands of cases of wine. I picture, you know, the opportunity to taste whatever you want at that time, the most expensive, fanciest mm. wines in the world. And instead, you decided to focus on these tiny, like very small production, mm. very handmade wines. Mm. Um, you know, I was having a, a conversation uh, with with a natural wine uh, producer um, who said to me that she felt strongly that that there's a certain limit of uh, vineyard space that you can't farm beyond 30 hectares or 50 hectares and still make a true, like a true artisan natural wine. Does that also play into a factor? I was looking through some of the parameters, how you, how you choose wines. And, uh, you know, I agree, I agree with all of them. I mean, uh, doing everything by hand and growing the grapes yourself, but do you find that the the size of the vineyard matters as well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, by and large for me, the, the people who probably make the most profound, highly individual, full of personality wines, you know, they, I would say they probably farm up to about 10, 12 hectares, mm-hmm. maybe a capacity of about maybe 50, 60,000 bottles. Um, and that already is probably actually quite a bit, you know, if, you, if you're going to be working completely naturally. Um, so I think, of course, you know, it's not scalable um, unless unless you can afford to have loads of people working, you know, the land. But even 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 then, I think the key thing for me into making natural wine is... is uh, 
is being able to farm, is being able to walk your vines, is being able to know each individual. Each of your vines are they are different. You know, they they are different things. They have different needs, and to be able to work with those individuals, with those people in your in your mm-hmm. vineyard, and then to be able to follow follow them through yourself all the way into the bottle. And I think you know that in itself will kind of limit how much you know wine you can you can you can make for sure. Yeah, if you walk your vineyard every day then you know if that plant is actually looking great today or it's, mm. look, or it's looking not so great mm-hmm. today based on how it's been, you know, the yeah. rest of the year. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, um, I, I just wanted to mention something because we keep on talking about natural wine. You mm. know, raw is not a natural wine fair, mm-hmm. right? We are a fair that brings together natural wine producers, orga- low-intervention organic and biodynamic wine producers. And for me, that's really important because I think, for me, a natural wine is, is a wine which is made without adding anything. So 100% grape juice. Not even sulfites. Not even sulfites. Okay. Then we fall into the low intervention category mm-hmm. where, you know, it's much better to use a little bit of sulfites than what is allowed under, well, organic in this country, you don't add any sulfites. But for example, under Demeter, which is the biodynamic certification. So, of course, they, they are all very close to the idea of naturalness. But I think it's really important, to, for, for me anyway, because I think at the moment, natural wine is becoming so like trendy and everybody's talking about natural wine. But sometimes I see people call a natural wine something which is not even organically farmed. Mm. You know, and I think we, we, we really need to start getting organized and really call, you know, a cat a cat, really. Okay, so do you find that, do you think that natural wine is also a style unto itself? Yeah, I think I think mm-hmm. um, I think uh, that's a that's that's a good description. I think people um, fall in love with the idea of natural wine. They fall in love with the story around natural wine, uh, the romance of natural wine. But sometimes they just stop at that without digging down and actually finding out what constitutes a natural wine. You know, is this grower really producing all of his cuvées made from organic grapes? You know, it's. You know, in the wine industry, we're always looking for stories or hooks. You know, when you sell wine at a table, you want a hook. You want to be able to sell this 100-buck bottle of wine quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a danger of oversimplifying things, um, you know, just just because it's it's convenient. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so you have natural wine and then low-intervention wine, and those... Both of the two of those would fall under raw wine or in the raw wine yeah. fair. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, th- there's not that ma- that actually if, if you look at how many people make completely natural wines in the world, there's not that very many. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, maybe I don't know, 150, 200, maybe a bit more, I don't know. But I've never actually really counted them, but there's not that very many. Um, and I think it's also important to be inclusive. I think, you know, I've, I've, I've seen... Um, you know, people who come to RAW really evolve as well. You know, I think when you bring people who, who work completely naturally and, and have a conviction, and then you bring people who maybe believe that sulfites is, is necessary to some extent, you put them together, there's a conversation. I've seen people, who, you know, really reduce their, their levels of sulfites that they use over the years because it's a journey we all have to learn. And I wanted RAW to be transparent so people can choose but I wanted it to be also inclusive. Okay, we're, we're talking a lot about sulfites, and sulfites are the mm. one additive that, that you mm. allow. Why is it that you allow, that you think that sulfites are the, the one thing that can be added? And then you, you have a limit of, I believe, 70 parts per million of free sulfur um, in the total. bottle of total sulfur. Uh, what, where, how did you come to this limit? I mean, sulfites is not the end of the story. It's just one measure. You know, they have to be organic. 
90% of them are sort of certified organic. Mm. Uh, there's no sterile filtration, uh, you know, no yeast, no enzymes, no microoxygenation, no no gadgetry. Uh, the, the the only things that people use sometimes are fining agents. Um, 70 is is a bit of an arbitrary number, you know, it doesn't relate to any certification out there. Um, I felt it was quite a generous figure because we applied for, for across the board, red, white, sparkling, sweet, sweet wines. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's generous for red, but it's actually quite strict for, for sweet wines. Right. right, and, and just in, just so everyone understands where why you're saying it's generous and uh, and across the board where that comes from in the in the EU the maximum amount of sulfites that are allowed to be added actually vary based on wine styles dry red being the least amount you're allowed to add with the idea that's probably the most stable uh, there's no sugar to ferment it has uh, the anthocyanins has the skins which which I can imagine have an antioxidant property and then a sweet white being the least stable which you can add the most because it does have sugar and it's it's not a stable um, so you've decided to do across the board 70 parts. Uh, yeah, and to give it some context, you know, when you look at EU laws, a red wine has uh, can have a maximum of 150 parts per million, mm-hmm. and a white wine 200 parts per million, and sweet wine is 350 or 400, depending on the style. Um, and over, so you know, 70 is still a lot lower than than what you would get out there. Even even with Demeter, you know, I think Demeter is like 90 or something, um, depending on, you know, the countries. But uh, we would like to lower this mm. over time. You know, I, I still feel put 70 for a red is way too much. You know, I, I wouldn't drink that per- personally because I think you can work. If you work well in the vineyard and you take your time to make the wine, you can actually make wines, you know, without adding anything. So over time, our aim is to is to lower you know, this, this total figure. All right. All right. On that note, we're going to take just a very quick break. We'll be back with Isabelle Legeron, master of wine and founder of Raw Wine Fair on In The Drink. This is Butterscotch by Talkstar on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of In The Drink. Bordeaux is one of the most reputable and well-known wine regions in the world. While many are familiar with its legendary first growths, there is so much more to discover. Bordeaux offers a dynamic and diverse range of wines, different styles, different colors, and different price points. Did you know that Bordeaux produces crisp, refreshing whites? Or that many of its outstanding reds can be opened now and don't need years aging? Or that it's really easy to find a great bottle of Bordeaux for under $20? With such a diverse offering, Bordeaux wines can pair with a huge mix of contemporary foods and cuisines. Bordeaux wines. Red, white, rosé, there's a wine for everyone. For more information, visit bordeaux.com US. All right, we are back with Isabelle Legeron, the founder of the Raw Wine Fair, coming to New York on November 6th and 7th, an international wine fair that brings together natural and low-interventionist uh, low wines um, from around the world, some outstanding wines. You can uh, find the list of the wineries on their website, um, and I will definitely be going. I'll be going on Monday the 7th, uh, but I think on Sunday the 6th, there's, uh, there's still tickets available, if I'm yes. correct. Um, so I recommend 
recommend, highly recommend checking it out. Um, on my trip to Abruzzo for, uh, for Harvest, uh, I ended up going over to Montalcino with my friend Chiara Pepe, who has been on this, uh, on this show a few years ago, actually. And uh, she had mentioned she visits London uh, quite frequently. And she actually credits you very much with being a true a catalyst for improving the wine scene in London. She said that she's noticed that since the Roth Wine Fair has, has been there, um, there are so many more interesting wines in, in London, and she thinks that it, it truly was a, a, a catalyst for, for improving the wine. And certainly you, you consult on, on many restaurants as well, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure it's a big part of it. Uh, in your time in New York, I wonder if you can give us a, a snapshot as to your impressions of, of natural wine in New York. I think... Um it's a, I mean, look, this is going to be a very limited outlook. You know, I've only been there a few times and been to a few places, but it seems to me that obviously the, the, the natural wine scene is, is, is burgeoning, um, or is it, you know, it's, it's, um, it's getting more and more popular. I see a lot of coverage. Um, I see that uh, people are, you know, there is a phenomenon in the US which is quite beautiful, which we don't get over in Europe, which is this kind of like, you know, sommeliers, wine buyers are... They're real public figures and they're real rock stars and they have a lot of influence in the media. You don't get that over in, uh, in, in the UK. You know, you know a lot about the chefs, but you never hear about the sommeliers. And that actually being here has made me think, how can we actually really pump up these guys who are doing such, and, and you know, guys collectively, you know, male and female, who, who are doing such an amazing job as, as, you know, at curating wine lists. So that's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, but I think... I think um, I, I see that people are getting super enthusiastic about about, about natural wine, um, and I think there is, you know, we need to sort of also make sure that all this enthusiasm is followed by knowing the wines properly, meeting the growers, and I think that's kind of what um, raw raw wine has helped do is is really putting, you know, bringing these all these growers together under one roof, so you can you can chat to them, you can improve your knowledge, you know, create relationships, and then and then you're I think you're. You, you know, you're better at, at selling those wines because you have more, more of the background information. And also, obviously, you know, in London, we've created a demand for it because raw has grown massively. Uh, we've, we've made a lot of noise. So I think that the public is more and more aware and actually seeking out these, these, these wines. So it's, that helps, in a way, fuel also a little bit, you know, the, 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 the supply. Um, it seems to me that, you know, there is... I think there's a lot of room for growth, is what I, I, mm -hmm. I would say in, in, in New York in terms of there's still a few establishments where you can go and, and drink those wines, but maybe it seems like we could have It seems like most, more. in my opinion, it seems like most good places have some natural wine. Mm. Right? If you have a good wine list, you have to have some, at least some, but there are a few places where it's the whole list. Yeah. There's only, there's only a few. Yeah, and that is the key because I think there is a difference between having a couple of wines on your buy-the-glass pour, which is natural just as a draw, and actually being really, you know, like Pascaline, you know, Le Pelletier Rouge Tomate, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm very close friends with her and I had a really great look at her list and it's, a, it's an inspiring wine list and you understand that from that list that she's curated, she really understands the growers she has all the vintages. You know she's going to be aging some of that stuff. You know, that's a proper work. And, and we need more of that. 
Yes, yes. And uh, for those of you who haven't been yet, Rouge Tomat recently reopened, and I uh, you have to go. I haven't been yet. I'm sure it's going to be outstanding knowing knowing Pascaline and the kind of work that she put into it. I've been speaking with her over over the few years that she's uh, been off. I think their their wine training manual is about 200 pages, which blows my mind. And she's she is just the best. Um, so when I think of uh, these natural and low interventionist wines, the places that come to to my mind are tend to be mostly in France, right in the Loire Valley. Um, Beaujolais, Southwest France, all, all over France, uh, and then Italy, because that's where I spend a lot of, of my time. What are some of the surprising places that we can find uh, these wines? Where have you been excited about that? Maybe there's a little bit of, of the a burgeoning of a, of a movement for these wines. Um, I think, you know, Australia, you know, you're seeing more and more people, um, particularly sort of, you know, the group with the Tom Shawbrook and, you know, in the Adelaide Hills, they've kind of spurred a, a, a really actually vibrant movement, and then they've created this Rootstock Festival. Uh, so there is something exciting happening over there. Um, you know, obviously bits and pieces all around, all around Europe. But I would say that for me, where I see a really great potential, which is just happening, but, you know, hopefully we'll see bottles coming out soon, is, uh, is all these Central Eastern European countries, you know, that have had such in a way, amazing heritage, you know, that very often has been crushed by the political system, by communism, uh, where people lost the, the true art form of, 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 of preserving these great varieties and, and, and making wines and sold out to, you know, bulk, bulk uh, winemaking. But, you know, more and more I'm seeing people in Serbia, um, you know, obviously Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, um, you know, where, where people are are rediscovering their terroir. You know, it's taking time to rediscover your terroir. You know, same with Georgia. People are rediscovering their, their, their terroir. They're rediscovering the potential of these unique grape varieties and they're learning to embrace them rather than pit plant Cabernet Sauvignon and, and, and Chardonnay. So they're, re, they're learning to embrace these grape varieties. They're moving towards, you know, more and more organics and traditional farming. Natural wine is going to be off, you know, or, you know, whether it's natural or low intervention is going to be coming the next step because for them, commercially, it's very tough to sell a wine which is slightly cloudy. In fact, in some places, you're even allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think these countries, um, you know, the stuff I'm seeing uh, in Slovakia, the things I'm tasting is really exciting. And I, and I think for me, that's an area that I travel a lot to and I, I keep a very close eye on. Yeah. How do you feel about cloudy wines in general? Do you not care at all? Does it does it pique your interest when you see a cloudy wine? Like when I see a cloudy cider, I'm like, oh, what's going on with that? That's probably really interesting. <laughs> yeah. To, to me, to be honest, when I see a cloudy wine, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I know that already I don't have to wonder how, how the wine's been made in terms of, you know, the filtering and the fining. Uh, so I, I like you know, a, a little bit of, of, of a haze, you mm-hmm. know, obviously, particularly in, in, in white wine. So it, but it doesn't actually bother me, you know, either way, because I understand that if you keep your wine most of the time, you know, for long enough, it will settle down anyway. Uh, it's just when you tend to bottle maybe a bit too quickly, or if you have a year which is particularly rich in protein in the, vin- in the vineyard, then that's quite difficult to precipitate uh, naturally over time. So, you know, if it's cloudy, great. If it's not cloudy, but it's still been made, you know, n- you know, naturally with natural filtration, clarification, then great as well. Yeah. So you don't have any detractors here at Heritage Radio, but how do you deal with the people? What do you say to the people who say that they don't like natural wine? Give me, give me some like, like ammunition to like to talk to these people. So I think, well, I think the first thing is just to not really be judgmental. 
right? So I think it's up to us to also be, you know, prepared that people like or don't like natural wine. Um, and then for me, the way I, I, I look at natural wine is, is, uh, is almost like I talk to people as if it was a food. You know, we and that the, the wine has different expressions, diff, different variations. And we're, we're looking at a sector of, of wine which is very similar to, you know, the sourdough bread versus the white bread experience. You know, the, the like the laughing cow cheese versus the, you know, the, the proper farmhouse cheese made from you know, unpasteurized milk type thing. So I try to get people to relate to it as a new experience, getting them to sort of see that normally we taste with blinkers that we're quite, you know, we, we, we taste inside a box and it's important to kind of get rid of that box um, and, and embrace wine as if it was as if they did, never had wine before, you know, because it might look different, it might taste slightly different and be prepared for a different experience. And I think you need to, you know, some people when... You know, if I do, if I work on the floor, or which is not very often, um, admittedly, but you know, or, or do a tasting for cost consumers or you know members of the public, and I say, you know, I, are you prepared for something a bit different? And um, and some people aren't, and then I think it's not even worth really challenging that. But otherwise, I think it's about looking at natural wine, looking at wine like a food uh, and a new experience, as if we never we didn't know anything about wine and rediscovering it. Yes. And are there some events that you're doing around? Are there some like satellite events, some tastings that while, while you're being ta- while you're in town that our listeners might be able to go to if they really want to get beyond just the experience of the raw wine fair? Well, when so um, when when the fair is um, is going to be on, they, they are loads of of grower grower tastings grower dinners. Um, you know, in, in, in places all around town. I mean, we, we, we will be publishing a list of all the offs that are happening. But if you're in New York that weekend, you know, the chance that you will, you know, spend an evening with a grower is, 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 is really high. And for me, that's the most important because when you go to a tasting, I mean, yes, you, you might spend five, 10 minutes with the grower and get to taste the wines and so on. But actually, you know, when you're hanging around with them and having a chat or having dinner, then it's, uh, it's very different. It is more intimate. So there'll be tons of stuff happening all around all around the fair, um, probably about a, like a, a week um, leading up to the fair and and, and afterwards. And a few days yeah. after, yeah. All right, and hopefully we can organize one of uh, one of the growers to be a guest on the show as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. Okay, we'll speak after and we'll figure out okay. who, who would be a good guest. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, Isabel Legeron, master of wine, uh, author of Natural Wine. You should go out and get that book. And the founder of the Raw Wine Fair coming to New York November 6th and 7th. Uh, I definitely recommend you check it out. I will be there. Thank you so much for being a guest on In the Drink. Mm, thank you for having me on the show. All right. In the Drink is produced by David Tadashore and Erin uh, Her- Fairbanks runs a Heritage Radio Network. Special thanks to uh, Heritage Food for putting uh, the Heritage Radio Network together and we'll chat with you guys next week. Thanks again. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.